This is your Calls Media Roundtable. I'm Rose Aguilar. Now we're going to talk about coverage of the Biden administration's unconditional support for Israel's war on Gaza. On January 13th, last Saturday, HuffPost reporter Akbar Shahid Ahmed reported that Brett McGurk, President Biden's top Middle East advisor, is pursuing a proposal to rebuild the Palestinian territory that focuses on a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This is according to U.S. officials. Many say that plan would sow seeds of future instability in the region. Members of the Biden administration discredited Akbar Shahid Ahmed's reporting and accused him of fabricating quotes in the article. Akbar Shahid Ahmed is senior diplomatic correspondent for HuffPost. In 2019, he became the first ever Pakistani journalist to secure a press credential to report from Israel, Palestine. Hi, Akbar. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me, Rose. Well, you've been getting a lot of attention over the past few days because of your reporting. As I said, you wrote about the Biden administration's post-Gaza war plan. You report that Brett McGurk is pursuing a proposal to broker diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Before we talk about the administration's response to your report, give us an overview of what you found based on U.S. officials who spoke with you. Absolutely, Rose. So I spoke with three U.S. officials who talked about this plan being pushed by White House Middle East advisor Brett McGurk. The plan involves the reconstruction of Gaza after the war being tied to the Biden administration's longstanding goal before the war, which is a deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, two major U.S. partners in the region, Saudi Arabia does not recognize Israel right now, and it has always said it wouldn't do so unless there's Palestinian statehood if Israel makes concessions. Now, what McGurk and some of his team are doing inside the U.S. government is they're saying, we can just uh, deal with this moment since the October 7th horrific attacks inside Israel and the war that's followed. We can deal with that with the same approach we had before October 7th which is focusing on Saudi and Israel, creating a deal. In McGurk's argument, uh, what will happen is Israel will make concessions to the Palestinians. The Palestinians would bless the deal and Saudi Arabia would provide funding for Gaza to be rebuilt. And the U.S. would provide enticements for the Saudis to do this. As you can tell, it's a complicated plan. A lot of players who have to say yes, uh, which led to one of the U.S. officials I spoke with calling it, quote, delusionally optimistic. This is called the Jerusalem Jeddah Pact. It is a secret document. And based on your investigation, Palestinian leaders would agree to a new government for both Gaza and the occupied West Bank and Mm -hmm. to ratchet down their criticisms of Israel while Israel would accept limited influence in Gaza. So can you tell us what else stood out for you when you saw this plan? Absolutely. I should be clear. I have not seen the documents uh, in which this plan is described. I had the plan described to me by U.S. officials familiar with these documents. Uh, these are classified documents, of course. Um, what stood out to me, Rose, is this idea of... Is this really uh, a surreal idea that the U.S. can just push all of these regional players who have their own complicated calculations and frankly, very little faith in President Joe Biden right now can push all of them to make these concessions and these agreements, 
right? And another aspect that stood out to me that I think is quite important is this is all being pitched with an eye towards the November election, ahead of which President Biden is, of course, facing public pushback from many progressives, many of his own supporters for his Gaza policy. So this plan is being pitched inside the White House as not only a strategic foreign policy imperative, but something that has a political benefit for the president. So he can sort of claim he's he's this great historic Middle East peacemaker. And it's important to remember that Brett McGurk, the White House advisor who's pushing this plan, previously served under former President Donald Trump, who really pushed this idea of getting Israel and Arab countries to make deals without serious progress towards peace with the Palestinians. We had you on last month to talk about the lengthy piece you wrote about Brett McGurk. Can you remind us again how he ended up amassing so much power and is able to push major Middle East policies? Absolutely. Uh, Brett McGurk is about is about as classic of a Washington story as you can get. You know, I mean, he clerked for conservative Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist and then went into foreign policy working on Iraq under President George W. Bush. He's one of a tiny, tiny handful of people who've actually worked on Middle East policy for Bush, for President Barack Obama, for President Trump, and now for President Biden, uh, which is quite striking to many observers. And, you know, I invite your listeners to consider what U.S. Middle East policy has done in those 20 years. Um, I'd say the reason why he's so powerful Right. I mean, this is not just some person in the White House pushing paper. The reason why he's powerful is that prior to October 7th, the most significant foreign policy people in the Biden administration, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, were focused on other issues. They were focused on Ukraine. They were focused on competition with China. Um, Previously, they were focused on Afghanistan, all of which meant that they weren't looking at this Middle East file, which meant Brett McGurk's power could grow and grow. Also, I'll say two things, uh, is he's just had a relationship with President Biden going back to the Obama administration when they agreed on some policy positions others found controversial. Um, and he sidelined other experts on Middle East issues at the State Department, at the Pentagon, in other elements of the U.S. government. <laughs> You have really been on top of all the stories about what is going on inside the Biden administration. In November, you reported that over 50 DNC employees signed a letter urging Biden to call for a ceasefire. Um, You have written about uh, the, quote, mutiny brewing inside the State Department over Israel-Palestine policy. There's a culture of silence. You've got a piece about that in October. So what is the latest? What are you hearing from people inside the administration? And what explains the Biden administration's refusal to move, given all of the death and destruction that we've seen over the past couple of months? Sure. Uh, The latest, I'd say, is that there is, particularly at the State Department, there's Uh, still deep frustration. There's kind of shock, right? That in so many ways, they haven't been able to even push around the edges. And what I mean there, Rose, is that, you know, these people recognize the president sets the policy, right? But these people are the implementers. So it's up to them to ensure that the policy is implemented in a way that follows U.S. law, follows international law, upholds U.S. interests, and shields human rights. 
And I think what a lot of people have felt is because this policy is so run by President Biden and a small group of people around him, Brett McGurk among them, uh, people at state, people elsewhere, uh, intelligence community, Pentagon, have sent so many warnings, right? Saying this policy, I broke the news that dozens of U.S. counterterror officials had said uh, this policy puts the U.S. at risk. Right, the blowback from this policy, the anger, the way it could fuel extremism is a serious risk. Uh, this week I broke the news that there was an internal State Department assessment saying even where the State Department has been working to try to get aid to the most desperate Gazans, Israel has in many instances said, no, that's not going to happen. And state is aware of that. So I'd say there's still deep frustration. There's, there's deep passion and, and the people who are concerned about this within the government are driven, yes, by human concerns, but also very much by strategic national security concerns. You're talking about the piece that you just co-wrote with Alana Vagianos about pregnant women and newborns mm-hmm. in Gaza. You report that women are giving birth in overcrowded shelters or tents. Premature babies are dying without access to hospital incubators and dire food shortages are leaving newborns malnourished. And I should say, Akbar, Democracy Now! had someone on from Bet Salem. I believe it was last week. This is the Israeli Human Rights Group. And they put out a new report called Israel is Starving Gaza. And they noted that we're not talking about a place that is very remote. We're talking about a place that is about an hour from Tel Aviv. And yet, and yet this is happening. People are going hungry and women are giving birth in overcrowded shelters and tents. I mean, Rose, you know, it, it's just, it, it's hard to imagine, right? I mean, people have given birth and had their babies die within the 100 days of this war, right? Be bombed or starved. Um, in our reporting, we found that, you know, there's just not clean water. So a lot of things, that's leading to a lot of disease, right? We found that women and girls were not able to get, uh, you know, resources to deal with menstruation. And I'd note that, it is not that the supplies are not there. To your point about this, you know, it's an hour from Tel Aviv. It's incredible how tiny this piece of land is, right? That's so contested. If Israel were to open crossings, the supplies would be there in a minute. And actually, in Egypt, on the southern border, where there are the only crossings that are open, there are tons of supplies that humanitarian and aid groups have brought there. So it's not a cost issue. It's not that no one wants to work on this. There are international relief groups clamoring to come in. But what we found in that story with Alana is that the real holdup is Israeli checks, right? Israeli, to some extent Egyptian, um, but primarily Israeli. And, and this sense of we will, we're not surging humanitarian aid in the way that we would in any other conflict, in any other population at risk of famine. What did you find out about why Israel is not allowing aid in? So there's a few things. I mean, one is a long-standing concern about security, uh, which aid groups say they understand. Look, I mean, there are elements of humanitarian aid. Uh, I'll just give you a very vivid example. One aid official I was talking to yesterday, a former senior U.S. official, uh, was describing how the Israeli military, they were trying to get intense. The Israelis told them, well, you can send in tents, but it can't be tents with a metal pole, right? So it has to be tents with a wooden pole. And what this person said was, okay, well, if we go back to the manufacturer, ask them to make it with, with a wooden pole. I mean, that takes weeks or maybe months, right? And people are right now without shelter. 
Um, and they were able to get the Israelis to accept the metal pole. But it's, it's that kind of thing where just having to, to push on these, on these tiny details because of the remote possibility that some of this equipment may be used by Hamas or by militants. That's what's really frustrating aid groups. And I should note is that, you know, aid groups say, look, we are happy to oversee the distribution of aid. But right now, because there is ongoing bombardment within Gaza, actually aid workers, you know, just can't do their jobs of monitoring aid or distributing it in the way that they would like to. So they're saying, we understand your security concerns. We have no interest in aid getting to Hamas or to other militant groups inside Gaza lessen the fighting and let us go in and do this as professionals. Akbar Shahid Ahmed is senior diplomatic correspondent for Huff Post, and he's been extensively reporting on what is happening in Israel and Gaza. Uh, Akbar, one question we've been thinking about a lot is we're asking these questions, but there are no international reporters on the ground in Gaza to answer these questions, to report on these issues. I mean, mm-hmm. Palestinian journalists have been doing really an unbelievably incredible job of getting videos out. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be able to see these videos. Something that I've noticed recently is a number of doctors who have left are doing interviews on PBS mm-hmm. NewsHour, NPR, international uh, outlets. And so we're hearing their firsthand accounts. But I just wonder... Why aren't international journalists demanding to have access to Gaza to report on what is happening on the ground? What is going on there? I, I think that's a great question. I think it actually links to, to kind of what I was talking about in the last response from this aid official, right? In that, you know, I've reported from Gaza. I've reported from Israel and the occupied West Bank. Um, journalists who operate in that space are very used to having to operate within the bounds of what Israel permits and does not permit. Um, and they really say that's, you know, security reasons and all that. And to give credit where it's due, in, in many instances, the Israelis, uh, when I was in Gaza, there was bombardment. The Israelis helped a, a group of journalists that I was part of kind of stay safe um, in that moment. Um, but I think the reason why there's not like a huge international call to to get in is that reporters are very used to hearing no from the Israeli side. Um, and so maybe are not even conceiving that that might be possible. Uh, there has been some chatter about uh, Qatar or some of the other Arab countries helping groups of foreign journalists get in. Um, but to my knowledge, every time that kind of becomes more serious, it becomes scuttled usually because of the Israeli side. Um, and then just, you know, just logistically, it's important to remember, I mean, News organizations, which are under attack, media as an industry in which we are facing layoffs, not not monthly, but really weekly and sometimes daily, news news organizations don't have the funding roles. I mean, to, if you're thinking about insurance, security, all those kind of things, that takes a lot of resources that bosses uh-huh. don't want to invest. Right. Well, it's it's such an important question to to keep raising. Uh, we have just a minute left, Akbar. We don't have much time for this, but we did want to ask you about how the Biden administration responded to your piece about Brett McGurk and his plan to broker diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia. NSC spokespeople initially declined to provide comment for your piece, but mm-hmm. after the article gained wide traction, spokeswoman Adrian Watson emailed you saying mm-hmm. the story is not true. Uh, it warrants no further comment. W- what was your reaction to this comment from the NSC spokeswoman? 
Well, well, Rose, I'll just note, Adrian Watson also said quotes are made up, which is the most striking part of her comment, right? I mean, because there is no basis on which they could know that I make up quotes, and that is the most serious attack you can make on the credibility of a reporter. Uh, I'm seeking an apology and retraction from them. They've now walked back that comment and multiple times. Uh, several prominent reporters have called them out and said they have no basis for this. That's a smear. So one weekend, it's disappointing to see that the White House is standing by a baseless smear. And the only way to resolve this is an apology and retraction that I look forward to receiving soon. Mm. Akbar, what are you working on now? Um, well, I, I just ran something on uh, 60 Democratic lawmakers uh, calling on Biden to, to emphasize that he doesn't want to see Palestinians expelled from Gaza, a really concerning policy for Palestinians that some Israeli officials have talked about. And I'll be looking further into the humanitarian toll for Gazans. There's some hugely alarming additional detail that I hope to be able to share soon. And then the other story we wanted to quickly bring up, because this is also very important. I'm reading from The Guardian here. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders' measure was a first of its kind, tapping into a decades-old law that would require the U.S. State Department to, within 30 days, produce a report on whether the Israeli war effort in Gaza is violating human rights and international accords. If the administration failed to do so, U.S. military aid to Israel could quickly be halted. By a whopping 72-11 bipartisan majority, senators voted to kill Sanders' resolution. And I just want to read a couple of the senators who voted in favor of Bernie Sanders' bill. This was actually pretty interesting. The Democratic Senator LaFonza Butler of California, who is in that seat, temporarily voted yes, whereas Alex Padilla voted no. And a few other people who voted yes, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren of, Mass- of Massachusetts, and Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. In our remaining 30 seconds, what stands out for you about this vote? Uh, what stands out, Rose, is 20% of Democrats supported this, which is a striking, whopping number. And I think we won't, we'll see this bill come back and similar legislation come up with even more Democratic support. So it's a really interesting thing to keep an eye on. Akbar Shahid Ahmed is senior diplomat correspondent for HuffPost. In 2019, he became the first ever Pakistani journalist to secure press credentials to report from Israel-Palestine. You can find his stories at yourcallradio.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Akbar. Thanks very much, Rose. And thanks to Malihe Razazan for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call.